Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Abby Phillip, and we begin with that breaking news exclusive and what is likely a key piece of evidence in the federal case against Donald Trump. CNN has now obtained an audio recording of the former president in which he is heard discussing classified documents in the presence of others and apparently holding and referencing a secret Pentagon document that obtains plans to attack Iran. It is the tape that could be at the center of special counsel Jack Smith's case against Trump for allegedly mishandling classified information. And the recording was made almost exactly two years ago in July 2021 during a meeting at Trump's golf resort in Bedminster, New Jersey, where he was taking part in an interview for people who were working on that memoir of his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Now, listen in to what he said exactly on that tape. These are bad, sick people. That, but, was, that was your coup, you know, against you. That's well, it started right at the like beginning. Like when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a coup. No, they, they were trying right. to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right. Trying yeah. to overthrow yeah. your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. Mm. Wait a minute. Let's see here. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. But look, look at this. You attack, and Hillary would print that out all the time. You know, <laughs> send it, email. No, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner, yeah, yeah. the pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying because we were talking about it, and you know, he said he wanted to attack Iran, and what? He said you the papers. Did. Wow. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a, a yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, it's so, I'm, look, we here and I have a, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe It's you. incredible. Right? No, they, hey, bring they some uh, bring some cokes in, please. 
In just a moment, a former Trump White House lawyer will join me live to respond to this. But first, I do want to dig into this now with CNN's Caitlin Collins and Paula Reed, two reporters who have been at the forefront of all of this from the beginning. Caitlin, uh, folks at home can probably go and put some headphones on and listen really closely to what you're hearing there, because the shuffling of the papers is almost like a, a a silent character in this audio tape. What does it mean for the former president to actually hear what transpired in that room? Well, it's just remarkable because, I mean, Paula and I and our other colleague, Caitlin Pollens, and really our whole team, we've been reporting on this for, for so long and trying to report this out. Uh, and we've known about the transcript, obviously, when it came out, when Paula got it, but also in the indictment. But to actually hear the former president's words and to hear the tone of this conversation, I think, is what could be potentially really damaging to Trump here, especially if this is something that is played at a trial for jurors to hear, because they are talking about it so casually. And also the defense that Trump has used, even in recent days with Fox News, but also with me, on whether or not he showed it to anyone. One, he tried to say that it wasn't a document per se, but it sounds very clearly like he is referencing a specific document in this audio and showing it to people. Now, of course, we know people in this room have been brought in before the grand jury. So they've spoken to them. They've asked them, of course, uh, what has happened here. It's unclear what exactly they said. Uh, but also you can tell that. And then you can also hear him you know, moving this paper around and showing it to them. And so the idea that he's showing it to people who we know do not have security clearances, I think that is one of the most striking parts of it is just and when it comes to whether or not it's damning information, it is, he is so clearly talking about this document here, not casually referencing something, uh, yeah. but very clearly talking about this. Yeah, he says, look at this as he is moving the papers around. Uh, Paula, can you remind us, uh, because I think that some people will have questions about this tape. Why did this tape even exist? And do you have a sense of how long the Trump legal team has been aware of this full context that's out there? He has a great question, Abby. So let's go back to the summer of 2021. Now, during this time period, the former president was in the habit of having his aides record any conversations that he had with journalists, any members of the media, even if they were friendly or people working on a book. So this is a meeting at his Bedminster, New Jersey golf club in July 2021. And he was speaking with some folks working on an autobiography for former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows. Now, two of his aides were recording this. It's our understanding that the autobiographers were also recording this. So he knew he was being taped. And one of the things that just really surprised me here is that he knows he's being taped and it's such a casual conversation. There is laughing, right, juxtaposed with what appears to be a discussion of some incredibly sensitive national security information. So that's really what struck me is this isn't him being like, psst, come here, I got something to show you on a secret recording. Yeah. I mean, this is very conversational, very collegial. It'll be interesting to see how that hits a jury at any eventual trial. Yeah, and it, exactly. I mean, you hear them exclaiming, wow, as he says, here, look at this. Um, Caitlin, can you tell us what is the reaction from the Trump campaign to this being revealed tonight? Yeah, I just pulled it up on my phone because this was texted to us earlier. And this is their view. Now, this is, I should note, not coming from a Trump attorney. This is not a defense that they're using in the courtroom from Todd Blanche. We'll see, of course, how they decide to handle that. But politically, this is how the campaign is handling it. And they say, quote, the audio tape provides context, proving once again that President Trump did nothing wrong at all. They say that he is speaking rhetorically and quite humorously when he references 
uh, Anthony Weiner there, and they have criticized the DOJ, the Justice Department. And then they added, and this was texted, additional from Trump, meaning the former president himself. As we've been saying from the moment President Trump rode down the golden escalator, the president did nothing wrong. And so they're saying essentially it, it proves their defense. But I think if you're looking at it from the legal perspective and what the defense attorneys here are going to have to argue when they're in court in Miami, it is going to make it difficult for them. And our sources have acknowledged privately that when they found out about this audio tape, which they didn't know about till March, whenever Margot Martin, an aide to Trump, went into the grand jury, that's when they found out about it. It made their case a lot more difficult. Yeah, I mean, that's clearly the legal lens of all of this. I mean, uh, he does say, not rhetorically, that these documents are secret, that he didn't declassify it. That's all actually in pretty black and white text. Uh, Caitlin and Paula, thank you both very much for joining us. I want to turn now to some legal analysis to address some of the things that Caitlin just raised, uh, bringing in former Trump White House lawyer Jim uh, Schultz and former federal prosecutor and national security lawyer Paul Rosenweig. Thank you so much, both of you gentlemen, for joining us. So, James, he is saying out loud, as I I was just saying, that he can't declassify these documents uh, that he had when he was no longer in office. Uh, Does that full context of the tape, as you hear all of it, change anything for you in terms of the strength of this evidence for the special counsel? No, really, if anything, it bolsters it, right? If this evidence is admissible, and I imagine that they're going to try to challenge a number of different on a number of different fronts. I'm not sure where they where they make their argument here to exclude this evidence. But if it is admissible in court, it's certainly troubling for their defense, at least Trump, for Trump's defense in this. I mean, it it make it bolsters the government's claim under the Espionage Act. It also bolsters their claim, you know, under the obstruction case, because you know one of his one of the things he's been saying all along is that he could just you know wave a magic wand and. And these uh, and these um, documents are declassified, and and in this instance, in his own words, he's saying it's not declassified. So that's that's very troubling for him, no doubt about it. And you know, I think the only ma- you know the big question is going to be what comes in at trial. Uh, you know, under the Classified Information Procedures Act, is this all going to be admissible? Probably so, and it's going to be a big hurdle for them to to get over. And, Paul, uh, Jim says that this bolsters the defense's case. Do you agree with that? I think Jim actually said the other opposite, that it bolsters the government's case. Yeah. And, and I agree oh, with him. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, it, bolsters, it, that, it bolsters the governor, yeah. government's case. Yeah, no. I, I, and I agree with him as to that. Um, you know, the elements of the espionage charge are willful retention of national defense information. And if the tape is is deemed you know accurate and admitted, uh, President Trump, admits that he knows that it's national defense information, i.e. a plan to invade Iran. And he, two, it demonstrates that he's he knows that he's retaining it. It's not like it was accidentally kept in a box of which he was unaware. It was on his desk as he was being interviewed by, uh, by the people who were doing the Meadows autobiography. So he's given them essentially, you know, nine-tenths of the proof of his... Uh, of his criminality on the Espionage Act. And, and as Jim also said, uh, there is no, uh, I don't want to give it back exception to the obstruction charge. He has it. He knows he has it. He's ordered by the grand jury to produce it. That's pretty damning evidence of that as well. Yeah. And and Jim, look, the, the hill is probably going to be tough for the Trump defense to climb here. But 
Trump has put forward this idea that perhaps he was waving around something that maybe wasn't actually the document. Does the government need to prove that he actually had in his possession what he claimed to have? And if so, how would they go about doing that? Look, this is all information that was probably uh, shared during the grand jury. You would have had witnesses that go into the grand jury that testified about the in that particular encounter, and they're gonna. They probably talked about all the facts surrounding that, what documents were in that room, and I think you know you're gonna have you, you know that's gonna be a, a problem for the defense in this case because the government look they they were very clear they put that in the indictment for a reason and the quote in that speaking indictment for a reason because they wanted to emphasize the strength of their case on that point. That doesn't make its way into that indictment if, it, if they're not solid in the grand jury on their facts. And Paul, at this document ended up not at Mar-a-Lago, but in Bedminster, all the way on the other side of the country. Uh, how significant is that to you, that, that the document ended up in a different place, specifically to prove in Trump's mind a point that he was trying to make about uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley? Well, I think it has a couple pieces of significance. First and foremost, it, it certainly suggests that President Trump was, was aware of the contents and the nature of the documents he was transporting. He perp- it seems as though he purposely brought it to Bedminster because it was an important document to him, that it meant something to him, that it, that it was relevant to his ongoing dispute with General Miley. Um, the second thing it means to me, which is quite interesting, is that it suggests that there are at least some additional charges that might have venue in New Jersey. We've, you know, we've talked about uh, the, the challenges of bringing this case in Florida, where most of the charges had to be brought. But this one uh, document makes at least one possible charge uh, that could be brought in New Jersey as a supplement to uh, the existing charges. And Jim, you can hear on the tape, Trump is, and the guests in that room are making jokes about Hillary Clinton's emails uh, as he's in possession of rooms full of boxes that he seems to know he shouldn't have. What's your reaction to that? So I, I think that really hurts him, right? And here's why. I, I mean, look, there's, there's this whole whataboutism that folks are making all over the news at this point. Anybody who's interviewed talks about, well, what about Hillary Clinton? Well, the issue there is you're not, you're not talking about what as, whataboutisms when you get before a jury. When you get before a jury, they're going to have specific instructions as to the elements of the case and whether those elements are met by the facts. And the, the, the fact that they're kind of being very casual or laissez-faire, if you will, about this whole issue when you have national defense information or alleged national defense information, you know, right before the former president and other folks in the room who don't have a right to look at this information, that becomes very troublesome to someone. And the prosecution's going to seize on that for sure when they're talking about the gravity of the issue before that jury. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I also thought it was notable, if you read the indictment, that little part about Hillary Clinton is not in there, perhaps to keep the indictment as clean as possible. But if this gets played in a court of law, perhaps that full context will be there for the jury to consider. Paul and Jim, thank you both very much for joining us on all of that. 
And up next for us, Maggie Haberman joins me to react to this major piece of evidence, what she's hearing from Trump allies, and more breaking news tonight. New developments in that crisis in Russia as Vladimir Putin's power is threatened by an armed rebellion. The leader of that revolt is breaking his silence, and Putin himself has a message for Russians. And back now to our breaking news. CNN has obtained what is likely a key piece of evidence in the federal case against Donald Trump. It is the audio tape of a 2021 conversation about the classified documents that he was keeping. I was just saying, because we were talking about it, <laughs> and you know, he said he wanted to attack Iran and what? And he said you the did. Pretty, oh, this was done by the military, given to me. I want to bring in CNN political analyst and senior political correspondent for The New York Times, Maggie Haberman. Maggie, you've also been reporting extensively about this tape and this conversation that went into the indictment. What was your reaction to actually hearing Trump's voice on this tape? Well, it's interesting, Abby. You know, one of the things that we've been hearing from people supportive of Donald Trump is that, you know, the tape is is not going to be as explosive as people thought after looking at the indictment, that the tape was, you know, not necessarily as bad as it seemed. Trump himself told Fox News that he wasn't really, you know, holding a document, he wasn't showing something. It certainly sounds like it on the tape that he's showing people in the room some kind of a document. Uh, You can hear papers rustling and, you know, you could argue that papers could be anything, but they all seem to be, you know, just again, based on the reactions, looking at something. And it's interesting what they chose to put in the indictment versus not, because from that full audio, you can see there are certain pieces that aren't. But he's clearly, you know, at least appears to be clearly pointing to some kind of material. And he appears to be trying to pressure the people who are writing Mark Meadows' book and working on it to include some of this. That was my big takeaway. Yeah, I I noticed that he said, this wins my case, which seems to tell you a lot about what he thought he was doing there. What did you take away from what Trump was trying to prove in that moment and also what the special counsel might have been trying to demonstrate by including that specific portion of the conversation in the indictment? Well, what I think the special counsel was trying to show was that Trump knew, you know, he talks on that tape about how he has, you know, no lo- essentially that he no longer has the power to declassify documents. He describes this as uh, highly confidential. It's secret. Uh, when I was, you know, uh, he said, you know, uh, he, when he was president, he could declassify. Now he, now he can't. So I think they're trying to show that he had awareness that, you know, A, he ha- didn't have the powers he you know, he once did, despite having claimed that he had declassified everything, and that would suggest that he knew this document was not declassified. And I think that they're trying to show that he knew exactly what he was doing. I think that, you know, what what was striking, too, about this tape, and, and I think there's some of this in the indictment, but he suggests, you know, oh, look, I just found this. I, I just yeah. came upon this. I think they're trying to show that he was very intentional about having this material in various places. Um, you know, he was famous in the White House for holding meetings that, you know, uh, either either his daughter or some other staffer would just happen to drop in and, and interrupt the meeting. Uh, there is a staginess about this. And again, I'm, you know, I can't speak to what exactly the prosecutors thought they were doing, but it appears they were trying to show intentionality on a, a variety of aspects. Here. Yeah. And he says, I, I have a stack of papers here and, and, and I found this inside the stack of papers. Uh, I also wonder, Maggie, um, 
you know, in the last couple of weeks, Trump has been trying to shift his story on this, telling Sean Hannity, oh, maybe he didn't actually have that document. Uh, this is not a new tactic for Trump, but he also knows that, that obviously that this tape exists in its fullness. What do you make of him trying to spin this when his, his legal team knows what is out there? Look, I think that he he exists in 10-minute increments of time, and I think that he just tries to survive from you know, those 10 minutes into the next. And I think that he said what he wanted to say to Sean Hannity, regardless of the fact that not just is there this tape, Abby, but there are a bunch of people who were in that meeting who will presumably be called as witnesses by the government and asked about this meeting and asked if they saw something. So, you know, I, I don't think the government was just doing this entirely on a lark. Again, we don't know everything that they have or what their plans are, but that's certainly within the realm of the possible. Do you get the sense from uh, talking to people in Trump's legal orbit that they have a sense of how they counter this from a defensive perspective in the courts? I think they're going to suggest that he was simply acknowledging what reality was, but that he wasn't suggesting that, I, you know, I, I think I think they're going to come up with all kinds of things that they're going to say about this tape. Uh, and, and I'm not sure how much of it is going to be something they believe or how much of it is going to be, you know, what relates to previous things Trump has said. You know, they, they knew this tape existed back in March, or some of them did back in March, um, after it was, uh, you know, raised when Margot Martin, an aide to Trump, uh, was interviewed at the grand jury, and then her, her you know, tapes and so forth were, were subpoenaed later. But this has not been a cause of extensive alarm for some of Trump's advisors, even though others, speaking more candidly, acknowledge this is a problem. You mentioned it hasn't been a cause of alarm for some of his advisors. What about his lawyers? I mean, several of whom have left now his legal orbit for, for perhaps for other reasons. But how do the lawyers who are not in the orbit anymore feel about this? Well, without getting into specifics of just sort of narrowing down who is saying what, there are some people around Trump who are pretty candid, you know, who have been or are around Trump, who are pretty candid that this is just not a not a good fact set for him. It doesn't mean that they won't find a defense for it. It doesn't mean that they won't argue, you know, all kinds of other things at trial or even before a trial, such as, you know, selective prosecution. They'll try to get, you know, notes taken by one of Trump's lawyers that are in the indictment out. But the tape is, um, the tape is a, a pretty specific piece of evidence, and they know it. And, of course, we learned just in the last week when Discovery was released to the Trump attorneys that there were tapes, plural. Uh, and and as you've reported and as CNN has reported, several of these conversations between Trump and all kinds of people who came through his world were recorded by his staff intentionally so that he could keep tabs on what was said. How big of a concern is there that this is not the only uh, audio tape to be concerned about for Trump? Well, look, they're going to they, they have the they have the discovery, so they now have the ability to go through it. But, you know, I what I, what has been said to me by several people is that this tape is the, the the most damning piece of evidence that they know of existing in this case. It doesn't mean that there are not other things that are very problematic for him. Um, you know, I I am guessing that some of these tapes are other book interviews or other interviews he sat for. Um, this is this is very specific. And this was just, you know, again, to your point about the fact that he knew his aides were taped. His, his, his aides taped these meetings. It's not like this was a secret recording. Separately, Maggie, there were reports today that the Secret Service agents testified in the January 6th case that's also being led by Special Counsel Jack Smith. What do we know about that? 
Look, we know that you know Secret Service agents have been subpoenaed in both cases, in the January 6th case and in uh, the, the documents case. Uh, Secret Service agents are going to play a key role potentially as witnesses in January 6th, even if Jack Smith never files charges and only ends up writing a report. But they were around during key moments on January 6th protecting Trump as, you know, Trump, according to testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, was in a, in a rage, uh, you know, wanting to see people who were said to be armed, now, again, armed with sticks and, and not necessarily guns, but be allowed to come into his rally uh, at the Ellipse. He wanted it to be bigger. Uh, they, you know, they were right there and had a bird's eye view, and so they are potentially very important to trying to understand both the details of that day and potentially Trump's mindset. Yeah, and of course, uh, part of that story is also Trump wanting to go to the Capitol and to what extent he, yep. uh, he planned to do that and wanted his Secret Service agents to protect him in that journey. Maggie Haberman, always great to have you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. And now to our other major story tonight, Vladimir Putin and the leader of the rebellion, both breaking their silence and giving dueling spins on what's next inside of Russia. But... Their whereabouts are both a mystery tonight. Plus, new CNN reporting that the U.S. had intel on this insurrection but kept it secret. CNN's Aaron Burnett joins me from Ukraine and CNN's Matthew Chance is inside of Russia right now. Tonight, as the mystery of Russia's crisis intensifies, there are five big questions. One, can Vladimir Putin's grip on power survive after the armed rebellion? Two, what is the fate of the Wagner Group, the Russian mercenaries helping to fight the war in Ukraine? And three, will an angry Putin take an even harsher action in Ukraine? Four, is Yevgeny Prigozhin's life now in danger after attempting an insurrection? And five, where specifically are these key players? Take a look at this split screen today. We do not know right now exactly where Putin is. We also don't know where Prigozhin is, while Russian President Zelensky is on the front lines. We have some of the strongest voices on the developments tonight. Matthew Chance is in Moscow. Aaron Burnett is in Ukraine. Kylie Atwood over at the State Department. And Fareed Zakaria is here as well. But first, the news. Both Putin and Prigozhin speaking out publicly today, breaking their silence after this weekend insurrection that challenged the Russian leader's grip on power. Putin briefly addressing the Russian people, angrily denouncing this challenge to his government. Without using Prigozhin's name specifically, though, he accused the organizers of the insurrection of being traitors. And then he claimed that they would never have succeeded at the end of the day. And for his part, Yevgeny Prigozhin released an audio message claiming that the brief insurrection was protest against the Russian Defense Ministry's handling of the Ukraine invasion and its dealings with the Wagner Group, and not attempt to overthrow Putin's government. Two factors played into my decision to turn around. First factor, we wanted to avoid a Russian bloodshed. Second is, we marched in demonstration of a protest not to overturn the power in the country. Tonight, Prigozhin's whereabouts are still unknown. I want to check in with CNN's senior international correspondent, Matthew Chance, who's over in Moscow, and also national security correspondent, Kylie Atwood. Both of them tonight have new reporting. 
I'm Matthew Chance in Moscow, and Russian President Putin has broken his silence after a dramatic armed rebellion was ended here at the weekend. In a short speech, Putin condemned its leaders as traitors, saying they played into the hands of Russia's enemies. Well, Wagner's uh, mercenary chief, who ordered his fighters to march towards Moscow, said he'd never aimed to topple Putin, but merely wanted to protest against generals who he said had made mistakes in the Ukraine war. I'm Kylie Atwood at the State Department. U.S. intelligence painted an incredibly accurate picture of what Prigozhin was planning to do, including how and where he was planning to advance. Now, according to U.S. officials familiar with that intelligence who spoke with uh, my colleagues, they said it was not shared widely, not even among U.S. officials very widely, also not among U.S. allies incredibly widely, and it also wasn't shared with the Ukrainians. The concern there was that it could be intercepted, those conversations between the U.S. and the Ukrainians, and the U.S. didn't want to take that risk. Abby? Incredibly fascinating. Now I want to go straight to Kiev, where CNN's Aaron Burnett is covering the latest there. Aaron, so what does this all mean for the war in Ukraine? Well, Abby, you mentioned a crucial question. Will an angry Putin, a frightened Putin, perhaps in some senses, take even more serious, harsh action here in Ukraine? And that's a crucial question tonight. Now, on the ground, Ukraine claims to have gained more ground in its counteroffensive. Uh, also, British intelligence says that over the past three weeks, Ukraine has taken more territory than Russia did this entire winter. So those are some of the positive indications. But still, it is a seminal moment. It is still a dire situation here on the ground. I spoke to a soldier today, a Ukrainian soldier who's in a drone unit operating near Bakhmut, he actually said that on Saturday, with news of the uh, the, the situation in Ukraine, uh, in Russia with Prigozhin, that there was some panic along the front lines. But he said that did fade away and that they're seeing a bit of a return to normalcy, as he called it on the front line just today. Now, keep in mind, it's unclear exactly what many Russian soldiers actually know is even occurring uh, in Moscow and between Putin and Prigozhin. But nonetheless, that's an indicator. And of course, officials here are taking uh, what's happening in Russia very seriously. They say there are strains underneath the surface, but they're very concerned about what Putin might do next. In fact, the head of intelligence here, uh, Budinov, he said uh, that Putin has drafted and approved a possible strike on the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant, which is the largest in Europe. That's something that President Zelensky has warned about in recent days. And today, the mayor of Kiev also said not only is he worried about it, but that if he's honest, here in Kiev and in Ukraine, they don't have a plan on what to do if that happens. Here's part of what Mayor Klitschko told me. President Zelensky has said that Putin is prepared for a terrorist attack on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Of course, the largest power plant in all of Europe. That would be a calamity. It'd be a disaster for, for Europe. It'd be a disaster for Kiev. Are you prepared for the possibility of such an attack? We hope it's not happens. We hope. But uh, we actually uh, make meetings, what we have to do, and give the instruction to the people. Uh, but to be honest, uh, to prepare for nuclear war, we are not. We are not. Abby, you heard him there. We are not ready. That is the harsh reality, of course, as he talks about a radiation fallout that would affect, at the very least, 
all of Europe. But that is the reality of the fear on the ground, uh, of course, across uh, Ukraine, the fear of constant uh, strikes, missile strikes on any given night. Here in Ukraine right now, they've been on average every two to three nights. This weekend, a missile strike on an apartment building that at once showed both the randomness and precision of these current Russian missile strikes. Five people killed on just one floor of an apartment building. Everyone, of course, lives changed in that building, some dead, some alive. And that is the current state of fear here on the ground that continues tonight. Abby. Aaron Burnett, thank you very much. Let's bring in now Fareed Zakaria, host of CNN's Fareed Zakaria GPS. Fareed, thank you for joining us tonight. This was a really unsettling but brief window into the possibility of a Russian civil war. What would it mean for the region and also for the world, really, if uh, the West had to confront a truly destabilized Russia? Oh, it would be uh, catastrophic for the world. It would be, look, Russia is one of the most important countries in the world. It spans 10 time zones. It's five and a half thousand miles. It would take you eight, you know, eight or nine hours to fly from one end of Russia to the other. Uh, it has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. It has a seat in the Security Council. It borders all kinds of uh, sensitive areas from the Middle East to China to Europe, of course. So it would be a huge deal. The, the price of oil would skyrocket. The price of every commodity would skyrocket. The price of uh, your food would, would skyrocket. But let's be clear, that is not what happened. As you put it, we, we got a, a brief, a glimpse of what could happen. Uh, and, and, you know, it's worth remembering the, 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 the downside scenario, the, the spiral scenario. But the truth is, Putin was able to fairly quickly and bloodlessly uh, thwart this, whatever it was. I'm not sure we can even call it an attempted coup, but a, a kind of an attempted challenge to the authority of the Russian state. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it, uh, it certainly seemed very real uh, in the first few hours and then things suddenly changed. Fareed, you know, the State Department says that Prigozhin's direct questioning of this rationale for Putin's war in Ukraine is a new development in all of this that could undermine Putin's standing in Russia in a way that we haven't seen prior to this moment. Do you think that that's true? I do. I think that was that has been the most significant thing, really, to come out of all this, because, as I say, Prigozhin seems to have kind of acted in a slightly bizarre and unplanned, uncalculated way. Yet, after all, 25,000 troops, the Russian army is hundreds and hundreds of thousands. They have an air force. They could have destroyed him on the, you know, uh, just using air power. But what he did was not just challenge, but assault the, the, the rationale for the war. And it's clearly an unpopular war in the sense that 200,000 Russians are dead or wounded in this war. Uh, It does not seem to excite the kind of nationalist fervor that Putin was hoping for. Uh, And what what, uh, Prigozhin is doing is is almost giving license for people to say, look, the whole thing was started on false pretext. I think that is a big deal. And it does puncture the aura uh, that Putin has tried to create around him. Now, does that lead to uh, the toppling of the regime? I don't think so. I think Putin is firmly in control. And look, we were just playing the video of um, people 
waving at and taking pictures of Prigozhin as he fled. Putin is not usually the type to take to uh, challenges to his power very easily. Should we be concerned in this moment that he could lash out in some way to just show the world and to show Russians that he is still in control? I think he will almost certainly do some kind of purge. That has been very uh, typical in Russian history. There was a doctor's plot against Stalin's life, uh, and he cracked down brutally. Uh, I, I suspect something like that will happen. It might be quiet. It might be more public. I don't think he will act out in a kind of reckless and seemingly irrational way, because what I think Putin will try to show is that he is in control, that he is in complete command, that he continue, you know, that the operation is going well. You know, I don't think he'll do something that would suggest a kind of panic or, or, or anything like that. So I, I, I myself doubt, look, you never know, but I doubt that there will be an attack on the nuclear uh, plant. I think what is more likely is really tough internal repression, a consolidation of power, and maybe some strikes on, on Ukraine to demonstrate that, you know, the Ukrainians are not winning as a result of all this Russian weakness, that the Russians are pressing forward. They have the air superiority and they will use that. Yeah, I, you raise an important point about internal repression. I mean, there are con questions tonight also about where two of t uh, Putin's top uh, generals are, who we have not seen over the last several days, but also questions about where Prigozhin is right now. He is said to uh, be going to Belarus, but we haven't seen any physical evidence of that. Uh, there's that. And then there's also, uh, if he is kind of missing in action, what does the Wagner Group do? And do they continue to be a huge force in Ukraine? Lots of unanswered questions tonight, Fareed. Yeah, very good ones. Uh, the Wagner Group, Putin seems to have been pretty clear in his message. It is effectively disbanded. Uh, he gave them three options. He said, you can sign up with the military, you can, uh, you can go home, or I think he gave them the third, the third option is they could go to Belarus, as I recall. But there was no scenario in which they were allowed to continue to operate. So Wagner, for all effective purposes, is dead. Prigozhin, you're right, is mis missing. Uh, if I were him, I would be doing exactly that. I, I, I mean, it, it seems to me he's a dead man walking. Uh, why would you trust any assurance given to you by Lukashenko or Putin, for that matter, I mean, Putin is a, is a man who has routinely assassinated dissidents who have done much less to challenge the authority of his regime than, uh, than Prigozhin did. So Prigozhin, I think, is a dead man walking. If I were him, I would be finding some, some place like Mali where he could, he could get himself some kind of protection. Um, and, you know, what it means in general, we, we, we just don't know. The, the, the fact that those two generals are, are, have, have not been seen is significant. When you see dictatorships crack, uh, when you see them collapse, generally speaking, what happens is you see elite defection. You see generals, intelligence chiefs, senior ministers sort of quietly disappearing. I, I, I don't know that that's happening, but that is the thing we should be looking for. Uh, if some of that happens, if, if people at the top close to Putin think that what Prigozhin showed was that there can be challenges to Putin's authority, or even just uh, a way for them to get away, that would be a sign that something is going on with the regime. 
And what this also all revealed is that uh, there's clearly not significant defenses within Russia that Prigozhin could have gone as far as he did without really facing any resistance at all. Fareed Zakaria, always a treat to have you on uh, a late night here. Thank you very much for joining us. And more on our breaking news. CNN has obtained that audio tape of Donald Trump talking about classified documents. It is a key piece of evidence in his federal case, and we'll discuss the political implications of this next. Tomorrow, campaign rivals Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis will collide on the campaign trail in New Hampshire and in the wake of this key piece of evidence tonight, an audio tape of Trump talking about classified documents. Politically speaking, the question now is how many of his opponents will begin to put a spotlight on his legal jeopardy. Joining me now is former advisor to George W. Bush and John McCain and the executive producer of The Circus, Mark McKinnon, as well as CNN political commentator, Van Jones. So, uh, Mark, we we hear the audio itself. And I I wonder, I mean, the, the last time we had a kind of significant audio situation with a former president or a president was with Watergate. Do you think anything in Watergate was as crystal clear in terms of the actual words coming out of Trump's mouth as these tapes are? Well, listen, tapes are incriminating. And it's and I think there's two people that are terrified tonight. That's Trump's lawyers and Trump uh, for the long term. But I think in the short term, there's a it creates a dynamic where Trump just draws a line and says this is a purity test. You're either for me or you're for the DOJ. And it puts Ron DeSantis in an interesting position because DeSantis, without having seen the evidence, without having seen the trial, uh, has already pledged to pardon Trump, which is interesting because he said if these same charges had been brought against him when he was in the military, he would have been court-martialed. Interesting double standard. Yeah. And Van, uh, when you actually heard the tape, you probably read the transcript just like all of us. What did you think? Well, I thought that if there's any proof that there's a two-tiered system of justice, the fact that Donald Trump is not at Guantanamo right now uh, under lock and key is evidence of it. Look, when you work in the White House, and I think for people who don't understand, uh, you, the, your first day in the White House, you don't even see the White House. They take you to a secure off-site location, and they spend about six hours telling you all the ways you're going to go to jail if you do certain things. I mean, it is, it is a scared, straight program for adults. And then you get your temporary badge, and then you go to the White House. And so for people who understand the oath you take when you're in the White House not to do what Trump did, and to see how flagrant he is violating the law, it is just shocking. Um, where are the patriots? Uh, yes, this is a two-tiered system of justice, because if I had done that, I, would be at, I wouldn't be in federal prison. I would be at Guantanamo. These are, na- these are national security secrets about how we are going to deal with Iran. There is nothing more sensitive than, than that than maybe the nuclear codes. That's it. And that's what we're dealing with tonight. So, Mark, uh, as you pointed out, Trump's rivals are not really touching this in any significant way. And CNN polling did find that Trump's favorability slipped slightly from uh, about 10 points from May to June. But he is still leading really far and away in this primary pack. At some point, are the opponents to Trump who are closer to him in the polls, like Ron DeSantis, going to have to do something different to try to really gain some traction here, especially really getting at the heart of what this uh, DOJ case is all about? Well, I think the interesting evidence, Abby, is that in the month of June, there were not fewer 
candidates in the Republican primary. There were more, five more people that got into the race as they see the mounting legal troubles for Trump. They're going to, most of them, with the exception of Christie and a couple of others, are just going to stand by and wait to see if the weight of the legal troubles ultimately break him. Now, he may not go to trial uh, before the election, but I think what they will wait to see is whether or not there's just enough weight of those legal uh, of those legal cases that what happens is a perception begins to come through in polling or otherwise that he's just going to lose, that he's going to lose to Joe Biden uh, in a general election. And once that happens and enough people, and that, you know, that reality sets in, then I think those numbers start to fall rather precipitously. And Van, it, it raises an interesting question, what Mark is saying. I mean, at some point, uh, you know, Trump is going to pretend like this primary doesn't exist and that he's running against Joe Biden. But does Joe Biden need to remain pretty quiet about this, considering that it pertains to his own DOJ? How do Democrats, how does how does the current president, Joe Biden, deal with mm-hmm. these allegations? I, I think Joe Biden, Joe Biden should be absolutely silent about this, because anything he says will just give Republicans uh, more reason to say, look, he's, it's, it's political. Joe Biden, you know, set this up, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is uh, the prosecutor going after Trump is Trump's own appointee. Uh, and so uh, but there's nothing that Biden can say that will be advantageous to the cause of justice. You don't want the president involving himself in this stuff. I think it's been good that he's been quiet. By the way, unlike Trump, who was politicizing the DOJ the whole time, fired, uh, you know, uh, people, uh, was begging for uh, his Department of Justice to investigate people openly. The person who politicized the DOJ and tried to weaponize the DOJ is Donald Trump. Uh, he did it, you know, time after time. Uh, Biden is, is doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing as president of the United States. Be quiet. Let the DOJ do its job. And that's what he's doing. And we will also, I guess we should note, find out about the special counsel that has been appointed to look at President Biden's handling of classified information as well, which will come into play here as well. Van and Mark, thank you both very much for joining us. And thank you for joining me on this special edition of CNN Tonight. Our coverage of this CNN exclusive reporting continues next with Allison Camerata. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We continue with our breaking news, CNN exclusively obtaining the audio recording of Donald Trump discussing highly classified documents at his golf club with people who did not have security clearances. You're about to hear Trump, in his own words, explain that he no longer had the power to declassify the documents, and you'll hear him shuffling through papers. This conversation is a critical piece of evidence in special counsel Jack Smith's indictment of Donald Trump over his mishandling of classified information. We've got CNN's top legal, political, and intelligence analysts here tonight. But let's start with CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed and former federal prosecutor Laura Coates. Ladies, great to see you. Paula, I'll begin with you. Let's get straight to that exclusive audio tape. What do we hear Donald Trump saying? All right, so remember, this is back in the summer of 2021 at his New Jersey golf club. And in the room along with him are two of his aides who he knows are recording everything he says. Because during that time, he was in the habit of having his staff record him anytime he talked to journalists, members of the media, or anyone working on a book. The other people in the room are two people working on an autobiography 
of former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And at the time, it appears that the former president is quite agitated about comments made by General Mark Milley regarding Trump's feelings and his desire to attack Iran. I'm going to let him take it from here. We can hear him in his own words what he had to say about that. These are bad, sick people. That was was your coup, you know, against you. Well, it started right at the beginning. Like when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a coup. No, they they were trying to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right. Trying to overthrow your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. Mm. Wait a minute. Let's see here. Look at that. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. But look, look at this. You attack, and Hillary would print that out all the time. You know, <laughs> send it, email. No, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner, yeah, yeah. the pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying because we were talking about it, and you know, he said he wanted to attack Iran and what? He said the papers. Did. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a... a, See, as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't, you know, but this is... Yeah, now now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, it's so... Look, we here and I have... And you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, I believe It's incredible, right? Hey, bring some some Cokes in, please. Really remarkable there, the casual nature of that conversation where he's clearly claiming to be discussing some of the nation's most sensitive secrets. Now, in a statement tonight, the former president's spokesman said that this, in part, clarifies that the former president did nothing wrong. Okay, Laura, I want to get your take on that. You hear the former president say, quote, these are the papers. He calls them, quote, highly confidential Mm -hmm. secret information. So here's a question for you. Does special counsel Jack Smith need to prove that they really were what Trump was claiming they were? Well, special counsel and the team is probably salivating a little bit at the fact that this audio tape, when you look at the written transcript, is so much more rich in this instance. It gives you the full context. It shows maybe the motivation in part, the idea of wanting to show off and somehow in his mind prove, it seems from his statements, you didn't believe me at first, now I bet you do. It's probably part of a greater contextual discussion about the reasons why he wanted to retain and ultimately reveal certain documents. But it does fatally undermine the claims that he's made in the past, including at a Fox Town Hall and other times, talking about the idea of these weren't actually paperwork assigned or associated with the Department of Defense. These were newspapers or magazine clippings. That negates that very wholeheartedly. But of course, if you're a special counsel, you're well aware of this audio and you know that every person in that room with whom he was speaking, the voices you heard, the people who actually had the tapes, they are now all witnesses to this and can be called in front of a grand jury if they haven't already been 
Ben Allison, or they can actually testify about what specifically he was in fact holding. It gives greater color to the overarching claims. But remember, the bulk of these claims in this indictment relate to the conspiracy, the idea of obstruction as well. And so now this full paints a clearer picture, but the conduct that is indicted happens primarily, according to the indictment, in South Florida. Mm, okay, so Paula, who are those other voices that we hear? So we know Trump staffers, Liz Harrington, one of his spokespeople, and then also Margot Martin. Now, Margot Martin is a longtime aide, and, and that's significant because when she went into the grand jury, they played this recording for her. And that was actually how Trump's lawyers back in March of this year found out that this recording existed at all. Prior to that, they were unaware of this key piece of evidence. And also emphasize that there are multiple versions of this recording because the staffers were not the only ones recording. The autobiographers were also rolling on this meeting, so they had notes. Now, it's unclear exactly how the special counsel obtained the recording that was played in the grand jury, but it's notable. March, March, that's when Trump's lawyers learned about this incriminating piece of evidence. So, Laura, as you know, Donald Trump has claimed that he could declassify whatever he wanted. But on this tape, we hear him admitting he had not declassified those and cannot declassify them now that he's out of office. Is that a problem? Yes. And the plot also thickens on that very notion. I mean, this idea that he was able to declassify with the waving of the wand was always legally ridiculous. And remember, this complaint, this actual criminal indictment deals with the willful retention of documents that should have been returned as well. The Presidential Records Act does not play the most prominent role in these conversations, but the notion of classified material or defense-related information, as is defined in the Espionage Act, is center stage here. And so the knowledge that he does not have the power to declassify what is in front of him, the nature of the conversation surrounding um, General Milley, and of course the documents and the substance of it, also give further credence to the claims that these were documents that were falls under the category of defense-related information, which remember means things that would be close to the vest of the United States, that would be something that our um, allies would not want to have out, or those who wish to do us harm would love to have. And so think about all of that context of the evergreen nature of the material. We're not creating new defense plans and war plans every day, and they're mostly things that have already been decided, and of course they'll be renewed in some form or fashion, but these are very sensitive materials. And so he's fatally undermined his own defense. I'll be curious to see what his lawyers ultimately articulate in the court of law. This will be the motion practice, Allison, we're all looking for, the pretrial motions, what comes in, what is excluded, and why. Okay, thank you very much for explaining all of that to us, Laura and Paula. Let's bring in former U.S. Attorney Harry Littman. We also have CNN Senior Legal Analyst Ellie Honig and John Miller, our Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst. Gentlemen, great to have you here. Okay, Ellie, your thoughts as you hear Donald Trump in his own words there. There are tapes and then there are tapes. That is a really damaging, devastating tape because what it does is it allows the prosecutors to put the jury in the room to hear what Donald Trump says, to hear him use these documents to make a point, to try to persuade someone, to hear him paging through, to talk about classified, top secret. Even here, his aide at one point, who's, let's just say, obsequious, Mm -hmm. says this is a problem. Now, she's chuckling a little, but even this aide, who is telling Trump everything he wants to hear, has to acknowledge oh, this is a bit of a problem. And as Laura just said, it undermines the core component of his defense, which is, I declassified here. He's saying, I could have, but I didn't, and I can't now. So 
I don't even know what the defense is. Maybe this is a very smart table. So <laughs> we, we've been kicking this around. How do you defend this? How do you, I don't how really do you know. It, Harry? Yeah, There's no defense. There's never been a defense. But it's got two really significant aspects. One, just as Lauren Ellie says, it puts the lie to all he's been saying. Of course, he's had 12 different versions. But we've known all, all along, or at least we've known for a couple months, this tape was pivotal in the United States' decision to seek a search warrant. There were people who were a little bit on the fence. This is the thing that actually persuaded them. And if you listen to it, you know why. He is asserting, true or not, a conversation from the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff about how we're going to attack Iran. That is radioactive. You can't even imagine sort of a higher level. So it was at that point that they had to go in. Another point, though, it seems as if, and this is what the um, indictment says, he's flirting with dissemination. Dissemination would be a whole nother crime under the Espionage Act, a whole nother level. We're talking, you know, the Rosenberg. But does that mean he has to actually hand it over to somebody? He's just, it, it appears that he's showing somebody. The short answer is no, but they've got to know what it is. And that's why I suspect they haven't charged it. It's in there mainly for atmosphere to say this is the kind of guy this is what he would do. He is so indifferent to the national interest because this is the highest national Im- interest. So paragraph six here is really put put in there for sort of atmosphere rather than charging dissemination. We'll see if they have the goods to charge that down the line. OK, so, John, they've laid out the legal case. Let's talk about the national security implications of this. How dangerous is it? So it's extraordinarily dangerous and it crosses over into the legal end also because it is It is pure to the charge, which is 18 U.S.C. 793, which is defense information. Doesn't matter if it's classified. When they made that law in 1917, there was no such thing as classified. But it's defense information that could be injurious to the security of the United States. When you have a hostile foreign power, let's take Iran, which apparently is the subject of this document, we understand, and you have a contingency plan, If we had to attack Iran, if there was a situation that came up and we had to put that into disseminating that information, not protecting that information, could actually undermine the entire attack plan. This goes back to World War II, loose lips sink ships. So I think it's a stunning example based on the charge that they chose. So there's this moment in it, and we'll play it again. I think we have it, um, where the the listener, one of the people— um, reacts to what they're seeing. Okay, so listen to this. Oh, okay, basically they say, wow. wow. Yeah, <laughs> this is one yeah, of the writers. Wow. Is that a big deal? Yeah, because, says, because wow. one of the questions will be, is there an actual document there? What is Donald Trump actually showing? In, in an odd way, it doesn't matter because th- this indictment that we have before us, that we live with before us now, charges 31 specific documents. Whatever this document is, is not one of them. So you don't necessarily need to prove there was a document there in order to carry your charges. As Harry said, it's largely atmospheric, but a very important piece of atmosphere because this is the one time we really see one of two times in the, in the indictment where Donald Trump is actually doing something. So what I think you'll see happening is people trying to piece together the clues. Okay, he's clearly showing them something, right? Okay, not- but Ellie, you know, yeah. because you've prosecuted these cases. When they get into court, they're going to play the tape and the jury's going to be following along with the transcript. And then they're going to put on those witnesses yeah. and they're going to play it again. Exactly right. And they're going to say... And when this was happening, what happened in the room? He held up a piece of paper. What did you what see? Did you see? I saw a, a, a red cover and the word secret on it. Did he peel back that first page? Did you see a document behind it? Did it also see secret? They will unfurl yeah. 
layer by layer, what they saw, what they were exposed to. Did they discuss giving it to? Yes, they did. They said, well, maybe we could declassify. So, I mean, all of that's going to come out. Transcript was damning. Tape brings it to life. Yep. Human witnesses bring it home. And even that one and word, main that person one word, wow. Could, I'm sorry, no. the main person who could rebut it, Donald Trump, he won't testify. <laughs> yeah. so, that, so all of these things will be effectively unrebutted. Okay, stand by, guys. We have <laughs> many more questions for you because we have much more of CNN's exclusive audio tape of Donald Trump talking about secret classified documents. Also, still to come, an update from the ground in Moscow. I'll speak to a top ambassador about whether Putin can hold on to power. Yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. I mean, it's so, I'm look, we here and I have, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe It's you. incredible, right? No. They, hey, bring some, uh, bring some Cokes in, please. CNN has exclusively obtained the audio recording of that 2021 meeting at Donald Trump's golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. The recording of this conversation is a critical piece of evidence in special counsel Jack Smith's indictment of Donald Trump over the mishandling of classified information. Let's get right to CNN's Caitlin Polance, who is in Miami, where Trump aide Walt Nada is expected to appear in court tomorrow. Okay, so Caitlin, tell us, how will special counsel Jack Smith's team use this audio tape? Well, Allison, we know that it is something that he wants to use, and it is something that he's described in the indictment. He's quoted it in the indictment document, and that is all very much expected to come to life at the trial whenever that trial happens. Right now, we don't have a final date on it, but the Justice Department wants the trial to happen in December. And when they do bring it to life, there's still going to be questions around exactly how that's how it becomes part of the story that prosecutors tell in the courtroom to, to the jury is one of these documents uh, that Trump is speaking about on the tape about Iran, a plan to potentially attack Iran from Mark Milley. Is that one of the 31 documents that he is charged with retaining in this case? We don't know. It's not clear either whether that will be something that is explained at trial, but it quite possibly could be because we know just from the indictment alone that this is the type of document uh, that prosecutors can use not just to explain the charges, but to explain the intent Donald Trump uh, allegedly had in wanting to keep these things and the attitude he had toward these documents after he left the presidency. But, Caitlin, just so I'm clear, that document, whatever it was that he was showing there, do we know the status of that now? Where it is? Was it returned to the National Archives yeah, Allison, that's a huge question, and it's going to be a question that we are watching a lot uh, for as we move through this case toward trial in all of the discussions before trial, because what we did know happened is that after the Justice Department got a hold of this audio and made it known to Donald Trump's team that they had this audio recording in this case in the final months before they brought the indictment against him, uh, we knew that they had subpoenaed these types of documents, either this document specifically that might have been in Trump's possession still or any copies of it that would remain. And his lawyers were in, unable to find the exact document that was responsive. And so it's plausible that the Justice Department found it in that search of Mar-a-Lago last August, and we just don't know that part of the story yet. Uh, but it's also possible that maybe it was a copy of something or maybe it was it was just a document that uh, is is lost in the ether. 
that is really going to be a big question to watch for whenever we head toward this trial. Okay, we're going to talk more about that. Thank you very much, Caitlin. Let's bring back Harry Lippman, Ellie Honig, and John Miller. What about that? What if they don't have that document? So Doesn't it, that weaken the case? Uh, yeah, I think as a prosecutor, you'd rather have the document and be able to show the jury, here's what he's talking about. But even if they don't have it, this recording is still completely relevant and I think admissible and I think really important because it shows exactly what Donald Trump's intent was. It shows why Donald Trump kept these documents and what he actually did with them. So you want the document, but even if you don't have it as a prosecutor, it's still valuable. You agree, Harry? Yes, but he, but there's the, there's a couple uses of the document in addition. Uh, and you can try ver- to sort of go for the home run, but I think Smith is smart enough not to do that. So at a minimum, here's what you can do with that document. First, it totally puts the lie to his various defenses about how he declassified everything when he left. He realizes he doesn't have that power. Second, it's one of, what, a dozen shifting explanations by Trump of his reasons. That in and of itself. You know, two days uh, ago, he tells Brett Baer the exact opposite. Oh, there wasn't any document there. You play those seriatim, and you've got a liar on your hands, and the jury knows it. And by the way, if it's admissible, it is admissible. Every statement of Trump, as long as it's relevant, out of court under the rules of evidence will be admissible. And as I suggested, and he won't be rebutting them. So those two things at a minimum. And that's a lot already. Let's play that Brett Bear moment, because that is how Donald Trump tried to explain whether there was a do- what what that document was that he was showing off. So let's listen to that. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. So he claims he wasn't holding up a document. So that's where the transcript doesn't help us. It's where the tape is suggestive. It's where the witness is going to win the day or lose the day on the witness stand, which is, did he hold up a document? What did it look like? Did you get to see the document? Could you read it? Uh, But I suspect if they put it in the case that way, they're going to do that. And then they'll put on an expert witness from the director of the office of, you know, office of director of national intelligence, What's a classification? What are the various levels? Can the president classify or declassify? Yes, he can. If you're the former president, can you? No, you can't. Is Donald Trump's statement here showing that he has a clear understanding of the rules as you understand them as an expert? Yes, he does. I mean, they'll build around this. And and he says in the tape, it it says secret. It says confidential. I mean, unless he's just completely fabricating this, it, it appears... And I think you argue to a jury the best inference, the reasonable inference is he's reading that off the do- the documents that you can hear him shuffling about. But he, as we've all already established, these whoever was in that room does sound obsequious, as you said. These were his longtime staffers. So when you put them on the witness stand, Harry, isn't it possible that they say, um, you know, so that, that they they back up his story? Yeah. And by the way, I think maybe the most uh, repulsive moment of the whole tape is where they're guffawing with him at the very thought of a confidential document about attacking Iran. Ha ha ha. The short answer is yes. And I think if you're a prosecutor, you use it conservatively. As I said, you could go for the home run, but it really doesn't matter in terms of it's going to his veracity and blowing out of the water. All his defenses, kind of whatever they say. And but but I I agree. I wouldn't put them in thinking they're going to make the case against their old boss. 
Um, John, as we know, Donald Trump was indicted in Florida because of the, the boxes that we see at Mar-a-Lago and that they were mishandled. But this happened in Bedminster in New Jersey. So is that um, a different case? Is that all part of the same case? How does that work? I think it's going to stay a part of the same case. The reason I think that is, you can see that um, the prosecutor here, Jack Smith, has gone to great lengths um, as he's developed this case to not argue about the judge, uh, who was controversial, and not argue about presenting it in Palm Beach. Um, he's going to great lengths not to play it too cute, um, but to go with the cards he's dealt. So I doubt they would bring a charge in Bedminster just to get the advantage of a different jury pool. Yeah, I, I agree with that. There was a theory going around for a while that maybe DOJ has a second set of charges that will drop in Jersey based on this. That's not how DOJ plays it if they're playing it straight. And as John says, they have played it straight right now. Gentlemen, thank you very much thank for you. all the help. So with two indictments, Donald Trump's future depends on winning the upcoming presidential election. We talk about what that means for the campaign next. More on our exclusive reporting tonight. The audio recording obtained by CNN of former President Trump at his golf club in New Jersey talking freely about what he calls highly classified secret documents about a possible attack on Iran. These are bad, sick people. That, was, that was your coup, you know, against you. That's well, it started they, right at the like beginning. Like when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a coup. No, they, they were trying right. to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right, no, trying yeah. to overthrow yeah. your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. All right, let's talk about what this means for the 2024 race, the presidential one, of course. We have pollster Lee Carter, CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, and our senior political analyst John Avalon. Great to have all of you here. Lee, your reaction when you heard this tape? So when I heard this tape, it's one of those moments that I, I, it's not what he said that matters as much as what people are going to hear. And my, my big reaction here is I'm not sure it's going to move the Republican primary voters all that much. I think independents and Democrats are going to be outraged in many ways. They're going to hear this is the proof that we've been looking for. This is the felon. You know, the, the, he's a felon at this moment. Um, I think Republicans have an opposite reaction. If you think about it, 18 percent of Republicans were more likely to consider Donald Trump post-indictment. They hear this kind of thing and they think there's a double standard that applies to Donald Trump. When you look at polling around what they say about Hunter Biden versus Donald Trump, they think that Donald Trump's, it's all politically motivated. They don't think that what he did was dangerous. Right. But I mean, this is the first time they hear, I understand what you're saying, that they think it's a witch hunt. But here you hear him offering up what he says are classified secret documents. Is that different? I think everybody knows that he had classified documents. I don't think anybody was debating. I, I well, really don't think most voters thought that the, the classified documents weren't there. I think the question is, are they secrets that are going to be damaging? And that's that's how a lot of Republican voters are looking at it. I'm not saying that's how I'm looking at right. it. But I think a lot of Republicans were saying, look, he had these documents. He knew these secrets anyway. And but, they're not but, that concerned about But the people around it. him didn't, who didn't have any classification um, John, your consternation? Yeah, I'm not buying that. I mean, for several different reasons. I mean, we had the CNN poll just a few weeks ago showing that his support had softened in the wake of just the news of the indictment, let alone this audio evidence. Uh, over a quarter of Republicans said that they would not, con- he should drop out of the race on the basis of the indictment alone. Uh, and, and, you know, while he is leading the pack by a lot, you saw some upward momentum by, by other candidates, albeit in single digits. Here you've got the audio tape that has been reported before uh, that deals with national security, 
right? I and mean, this is the kind of stuff that can get people killed if it falls into the wrong hands. Um, and if you line that up with the lies he has told consistently, well, that's the wrong word for Donald Trump, the different lies he has told about this, including to the Brett Bears you just played the earlier clip, um, you can splice all those together and say, look, he is lying. He is lying about holding on to national security secrets. Now, the hardcore supporters may not affect them, but to anyone with an ints of being fair-minded or independent-minded, that's got to be damning. Um, Joy, this is interesting because as a defense attorney, you would lean into what Lee is saying in terms of appealing to people who, for who um, still have, you know, a shred of doubt. Yes. Yeah, so trials are about campaigns. Same thing. And what you want to do is you want a message. And part of that messaging has to be trust. And a lot of cases, right, from a defense perspective are predicated upon whether or not people trust the government. Can you trust what people are telling you, what they're representing to you, the information they're providing to you, what the motivative motivations were for getting and gathering that information? What makes this different, though, is it's in his words. There's an indication that it's secret. There's an indication that he said many times, I could have declassified it as president. I'm not president anymore. He's owning the issue of knowledge. He's sharing it with other people across the table. Why do I raise that? Because when you're arguing as a defense attorney, don't trust the government, don't trust what they're telling you, fabrications, lies, etc. Now we have your own voice, sir. And that own voice cuts against the notion that it's just don't trust the government. They're evil. They're out to get everyone. I'm innocent. Let me ask you this. Um, Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden by more than seven million votes. Does all of this, the audio tape, all of these indictments, does that help him pick up some of those seven million? I mean, how is he going to get more votes next time around with all of this? So I think this really impacts him the general election. And that's the bottom line. When you look at the impact on polls, it has a huge impact on independent voters and it has a huge impact on Democratic voters. They're going to be more energized, more likely to vote against Donald Trump than they would before. And in fact, many independents who are considering him are going to be less likely to now as a result of it. But I do think that this actually is, you know, in, in many ways, there's a sort of opposite day thing that applies to Donald Trump. And with Republican voters in the primary, this seems to have given Trump energy and, and, and really adds uh, fuel to the fire about the narrative. This two you know, tiers of justice that he talks about, the witch hunt thing seems so unfair. You can hear a lot of contrast, I, I'm, I'm sure, about Hunter Biden's text messages versus the treatment of sure. this. I mean, you already hear that yeah. on, on other yeah. networks for sure. Will his, other, will his opponents in the Republican primary seize on this somehow? Or... They should. I mean, I think, you know, Judge Ludwig made a great point uh, the other day. Saying Republicans got to grow a spine at this point. Um, you know, not just from the self-interest of the point of the other candidates, but that the, this candidate not only is under indictment for serious crimes, um, but he is a general election loser because he's even more kryptonite among independents than he was before, and independents decide who win general elections. So they got to start standing up and speaking out, and they can do it by saying, look, he lied, and this is about national security. Friends, thank you very much. All right, next, we're in Moscow, where Vladimir Putin finally broke his silence. What does the chaos mean for his grip on power? Vladimir Putin finally broke his silence tonight at 10 p.m. Moscow time about the armed rebellion led by his former ally, Yevgeny Prigozhin. We do not know where Prigozhin is tonight adding to the uncertainty about what might happen next. Joining me now is CNN's senior international correspondent, Matthew Chance, in Moscow. Matthew, as I said, we finally heard from Vladimir Putin. What did he say? And do we know where he is or where Prigozhin is right now? 
Uh, well, we know where Vladimir Putin is. I mean, he's uh, you know, safely ensconced inside the Kremlin. But, yeah, you're right. For the first time uh, since this rebellion came to an end, so we're talking about a good three days, Vladimir Putin appeared on state television uh, addressing the nation. And he was, I mean, that was an angry president that, that we w were watching on, on, the, uh, on the television uh, just a few hours ago, basically absolutely slamming uh, what he called the traitors who carried out or who led uh, this military uh, uprising, the mutiny by the Wagner mercenaries against him. He, he said that they played into the hands of Russia's enemies uh, by you know, putting Russian against Russian and spilling Russian blood. Um, and he restated an offer uh, that had been made before to the Wagner fighters that took part, saying they could either now sign uh, military contracts uh, with the Russian army, or they could leave the country altogether and go to the neighbouring country uh, of of Belarus. He also, Putin, tried to get back some of the authority that he's certainly lost over the past couple of days by saying that it was only because of him that there wasn't more bloodshed, because he'd ordered the authorities, he said, to make sure there was as little bloodshed as possible. But again, this is a weakened uh, Russian president and a very angry one indeed. Matthew, you, of course, have spent a lot of time reporting in Moscow. Does it feel different tonight in the city after everything that happened this weekend? I, I think it does. I mean, look, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of relief in the city that the Wagner forces didn't enter it because that would have led to a confrontation and nobody wanted you know, to, see, to see that happen. Um, but, you know, there's also a lot of anxiety now as well about what this means. You know, what will Vladimir Putin do in order to shore up his authority, which, as I say, has definitely been weakened? And, you know, will the fact that one uh, mutiny has taken place against Vladimir Putin mean that others may follow in the future as well? Because what's been lost at, at here in Russia and here in Moscow is this aura of invincibility around Vladimir Putin. He was always seen as a sim symbol of stability. It's where he drew his power from. Russians saw him as you know, a consistent figure who would bring stability and had brought stability to the country. That isn't necessarily the case anymore. And that's very concerning to people across the country. Mm. Matthew Chance, thank you very much for all of the reporting from Moscow for us. Great to see you. Let's bring in the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, now William Taylor. Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for being here. So many analysts, as you just even heard Matthew Chance say, that this whole strange episode has weakened Putin. But he did manage to quell a rebellion and dispatch Prigozhin to Belarus, perhaps. So is he significantly weakened? Alison, I think he is. I think he is weakened. Um, he blinked and Prigozhin blinked. Um, they were both on a collision course. Um, Prigozhin, of course, barreling up the M4 from the south towards, uh, towards Moscow. Um, Putin blasting the, that morning, uh, Saturday morning, uh, the traitor and stabbing in the back and he was going to arrest them and crush them. Um, and what did he do? Um, he called it all off. He said, nope, actually, we're not going to arrest them. We're going to allow them to go, go to Belarus. Um, so I, I don't see how that helps him at all. It, it, it indeed removes him from the, from the area from the, from the league of, of great leaders. Um, he was, as Matthew just said, he was seen to be of source of stability, making good decisions, 
well, he's made some really bad decisions uh, uh, coming uh, into this this whole conflict. Hmm. As you know, Putin has no compunction about having his enemies poisoned or jailed. So what's going to happen to Prigozhin now? Prigozhin must be very worried why he would agree to go to Belarus. I mean, Belarus um, is part of the Union State, Alison, that uh, that is some some combination of Belarus and Russia. Um, uh, and and uh, Lukashenko is not known to be a heavyweight. I mean, he's clearly uh, uh, beholden to, uh, to Putin. Um, and as you say, people who cross Putin, people who are accused of much less uh, crimes than Prigozhin have ended up dead, uh, falling out of windows, poisoned, as you indicate. So if I were if I were if I were Prigozhin, I would spend as little time as possible um, in Belarus. Aaron Burnett just spoke to former Prime Minister of Russia Mikhail Kasyanov tonight, and he said he thought Putin looked pathetic. That's a quote and nervous. Quote in his speech. So what's your assessment of how Putin appeared? He looked angry. Um, he looked angry. He was not under control. I mean, he's prided himself on being in control. Never let him see you sweat. Um, but he was clearly angry. Um, he's been dissed. I mean, he's been disrespected. Um, he's been challenged. Challenged not just by, by someone, but one of his own creations. I mean, Putin made Prigozhin. There's no doubt. And to have Prigozhin, who, who Putin thought was loyal... Um, turns out not to be so loyal. Turns out that he was on the way up to confront Putin and certainly to confront the Ministry of of Defense. So, Ambassador Taylor, how does Ukraine capitalize on this? And how do they capitalize on the fact that it now seems that the Wagner Group may not be fighting as ruthlessly there? You're exactly right. This is the time for the Ukrainians uh, for a couple of reasons. One is the one you mentioned, that is... uh, 25 to 50,000 of some of the best troops um, on the Russian side. I mean, the Ukrainians have even said uh, that they thought that the Wagner, the Wagner folks uh, were actually fighting better, fighting more competently um, than any of the Ministry of Defense forces. So the, the Russians don't have those. They're not on the line. They may not even be back in Ukraine. They may even not be available to uh, act in reserve. Uh, they may be they may be disbanded. So there, there's that. And the Ukrainian morale could not be higher. I mean, they're so pleased. They were just watching the events over the weekend with amazement and amusement and knowing that disarray in the Kremlin, disarray in the military chain of command uh, on the Russian side gives them an advantage to their counteroffensive, which, Alison, as you've been reporting, uh, they've been preparing and indeed, starting the conduct of this counteroffensive for weeks and months. So they're ready. Um, and now that the Russians are somewhat weaker, uh, the military chain of command is clearly in disarray. Uh, the military chain of command has to worry about domestic issues. Former Ambassador Bill Taylor, great to see you. Thank you very much for all of that context tonight. Thank you, Elsa. OK, more on what this means for the front lines in Ukraine next.
Russian President Vladimir Putin managing to survive a failed uprising by Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin. But could this power struggle still lead to trouble for Russia on the front lines of their war with Ukraine? That's the question for CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton. Colonel? Allison, I think the answer to this is yes. And the reason I say it's yes is because what the Ukrainians have been able to do here, they started out at the village of Velika Novosilka and moved in this general direction. So they were able to capture several villages in this area, including the village of Rivnopil and the other village up in this area of Krasnohorivka. The one, this one is important because it was actually a village that was controlled by the Russians, has been controlled by the Russians or their surrogates since 2014. So this marks the first time that Ukraine has actually been able to capture a village that was controlled by the Russians since the beginning of this effort back in 2014. So this marks a very different aspect of the war and means that the Ukrainians do have the capacity uh, to take over not only areas that have recently been captured by the Russians, but also areas that have been captured by the Russians all the way back to 2014. That spells trouble for the Russians because one of the things that they thought they could do is not only control this area, but really all of Ukraine. The fact that they can't do that is evidenced by the fact also that they have a really weak defense effort inside Russia. And the fact that they have a weak defense effort inside Russia was evidenced by what happened during the mutiny uh, when Prigozhin's forces and the Wagner Group were able to go all the way from Rostov-on-Don all the way to a point right about here, about 125 miles south of Moscow. The fact that they were able to do this shows a lot of weakness within the Russian military structure, and it could spell trouble for the Russians because they are not able to respond to these kinds of threats, especially if the threats have weapons from the West backed up against that. And what they're able to do with those weapons uh, on the Ukrainian side will then determine whether or not the Ukrainians can actually take over these areas of their territory. Allison? Colonel, thank you so much. And tomorrow on CNN This Morning, Bank of America's CEO is going to join live to talk new recession fears and what's ahead for the U.S. economy. That all starts at 6 a.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.